Hello and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the Poop Detective. And I'm Jen, the Magical Mapper. Welcome to episode 17, The Partnership in the Sound, A Love Story of Recovery. Aww. In this episode, we will finally share the story that birthed the term backdoor style. <laughs> it's not what you think. It's not what you think. We will then dive right in to the Puget Sound Partnership and the 2019 State of the Sound Report. Newsflash. We will not be recovering Puget Sound by 2020. Shocker. I know. We'll also be talking about how GIS dashboards make life easier and the call to action from the State of the Sound Report. Even though it's not going to be recovered by next year, that's no reason to just give up and the partnership has a lot of suggestions for actions. So get settled in because we're going full nerd in this episode. Ooh. Hey, Jen. What? What do you get when you cross a cow with an octopus? A manatee? Actually, you get a meeting with the ethics committee and the swift removal of your research funding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I see we're going full on nerd already, but 100%. I don't know if this is a nerd moment. I mean, it kind of is. I mean, we've been teasing you about backdoor style for a while. So I thought perhaps it was finally time to explain. And it all happened when Amy and I traveled to Hawaii a few years ago. It's already getting a lot, lot dirtier. We were staying in Kona in a condo right on the beach for a few days. It was a really sweet location. Uh, trying to gloat it up or what mm-hmm, over there. Mm-hmm. And we decided to walk to a restaurant just up the road for dinner. So anyway, I had a couple of beers on the lanai while I was waiting and waiting and waiting. You're dead to me. <laughs> for Amy to get ready to go. And then we walked up to the restaurant. So we ordered and we had a full beer and everything while we were waiting for our food. And once our food came, I almost immediately had to pee. But for some reason, I thought it would be extremely rude to get up in the middle of my meal and use the restroom. I don't know where that was coming from. So there's a couple of things like this for Jen. In this case, she didn't want to be rude and get up and pee during the middle of the food, which of course I wouldn't have cared and I would have done had I needed to pee (laughs) during the meal. Like that ain't healthy to hold it, Jen. No, it's definitely not. Other things can happen too. Yeah, so I tried to eat really quickly, which is not something I can do because I'm the slowest eater on the planet. It like takes me hours to finish a meal. It's true. She's like a grazer. It took me like three hours to finish my lunch the other day. And it was a Mexican restaurant, which is my favorite type of food. And it was really good food and I was hungry. So I wanted to finish it or at least eat it until I was full. And I just started having to pee more and more. Which is weird, right? Right. I mean, every once in a while, I guess the urge to pee can kind of go away if you don't think about it. Right. But mostly I think it just gets worse usually. I mean, I even started doing the pee-pee dance in my chair. Mm -hmm. But I was almost finished and the bill came. So I put my credit card down and I finished almost all my food, but I just got to the last bite. and I was like, I can't wait anymore. I have to go. So I jumped up and ran over to the restroom and I tried to open the door, which is like this lever type doorknob and it wouldn't turn. So I'm like, crap, it's locked. Uh, so I waited about 30 seconds and I just couldn't wait anymore. And so I, I was like, I'm just going to go in the men's room. I don't care. But that one was locked too. So I went back to the women's and then like a little piece started trickling out. Yeah. And uh, then it started gushing out. And so I ran out the back door of the restaurant and immediately like pulled down my pants and peed on the concrete right outside of the back door back door style style. and I was right next to the open door to the kitchen and I could see the road but luckily there were some bushes and the restaurant was a little above the road so I was hoping that nobody could see me 
I mean, and I was hoping there were no security cameras or anything like that, and nobody came out of the kitchen. So I pulled up my pants and I looked at the concrete, and it looked totally suspicious. I mean, it was next to a downspout and it had rained earlier, but my pee was obviously not rainwater. Uh, newsflash, pee is not rainwater. No. And so I, I tried kicking rainwater over so it looked more natural. <laughs> But eventually I just gave up and my shorts were soaking wet because I'd peed myself and I couldn't tell how obvious it was and I couldn't really see. It was dark out and I don't know. There was no mirror out the back door, surprisingly. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to suck it up and I have to go back in because I still had to sign the bill and get my credit card. And I also had unfortunately left my phone and everything inside on the table. So I couldn't text Amy and tell her, hey, forge my signature and meet me outside. So I had to go back in. And I finally took some deep breaths and worked myself up. And I went to open the back door and it was locked. What's up with these locked doors? Not all things are what they seem, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what it looks like. (laughs) So I had to walk all the way around the restaurant and come back in the front door. And when I walked in, the hostess kind of did a double take. She's like, what? wait, where did you come from? And I just like quickly walked back to my table and I kind of hit Amy on the arm she going by. She punched me in the <laughs> shoulder. I was like, what the heck? Like, I'm just sitting here all politely waiting. Like, what's taking Jen so long? I was hoping it would force her to look at me so she could see if my shorts were wet or not. But she didn't. She was just all confused about why I'm coming from the opposite direction of the restroom. And I didn't want to say anything out loud. So I texted her thought I'd piss myself and she just started no 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 no. you did not text me I pissed myself oh. you text me the, the, the <laughs> emojis emojis whatever those things are that young people use to talk on the telephones with mm-hmm. uh emoji me it was like dancing lady shower <laughs> wave so it was something like that you were trying to communicate I wet myself but it was not in words initially <laughs> which is why I busted out flipping laughing (laughs) so i just asked her okay look when i stand up and let me know if you can tell and she said she couldn't tell but i didn't really believe her because she didn't tell the truth that may or may not be accurate but i (laughs) definitely she was totally good there is no visible evidence from behind (laughs) or in front for that matter (laughs) right so She also then pointed out that she thought the restrooms had multiple stalls because she'd seen more than one man going into the men's room at once. And I looked over and she was right. (laughs) So So it turns out it was a lever style handle, but it wasn't an up or down to open it. It was just just a push. Or pull. I don't remember. One of the two. And so all of that amazingness. Yeah, I just didn't know how to work the door handle. Yeah. So then I just made Amy go back to the condo with me before we went anywhere else so I could quickly shower and put on clean shorts. And now we call peeing our pants or almost peeing our pants back back door door style. style, Like, don't back door style right now, Jen, again. Well, pull over then, Amy. I'm going to back door style (laughs) right in this car seat. I mean, I feel like it should have a different name if it's diarrhea and pee, though. Um, that's not what I meant. (laughs) That's another story altogether. Yeah, so we get some weird looks from people when we say that. Uh, So we thought we should finally share and clear up any confusion. And Jen just also wanted to let everybody know that she's a human being that wets herself Mm -hmm. sometime after she drinks too much and thinks it's weird if she goes to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know that I drank too much. I drank too much without peeing in between. 
Right. I mean, it also happens with like coffee or water. Yes. Anything. Air. I don't know. (laughs) So yes, that is our gift to you. Happy holidays. Well, moving right along. Let's be finished embarrassing me. (laughs) Uh, Next, we're going to talk about the teeny tiny task of Puget Sound ecosystem recovery by 2020. Do you think we met that goal? Hmm. My sources tell me no. Hmm. So the 2019 State of the Sound is the Puget Sound Partnership's sixth biennial report to the legislature on progress towards the recovery of Puget Sound by 2020. The document reports on both the status of the partnership's recovery efforts and the status of the suite of ecosystem indicators. This report is intended to help partners and decision makers better understand how well the recovery effort is going overall ecosystem health and progress towards the recovery goals, the role that each partner can play in achieving Puget Sound recovery, and it also responds specifically to the state statue that created the partnership. The statue? Yep. It's like a Statue of Liberty, but um, (laughs) slightly different. Oh, statute. There are two parts to the State of the Sound moving right along. (laughs) They have both a website and a PDF report. We'll have links to both in our show notes. The report is required by state law. So they have a PDF report, which, you know, when they originally did this, they printed it out. So it's kind of this shiny, right, nice thing to look at. And I think you still can actually request a printed copy of it if you want one. But that probably doesn't help the sound. Kind of guessing not. And to me, just in doing research for this episode, it was not super conducive either, because really you Mm. had to look in multiple places to find information to get a a real clear picture of what was going on. But Mm. it's also very detailed, complex information. So the PDF report includes additional information on the status of recovery efforts, including detailed information on fund near-term actions, ongoing programs, legislative and policy developments, and a summary of citizen concerns. Hmm. Where the website has other stuff that isn't in the PDF, like they highlight a couple of recovery efforts, and then they also have the vital signs, and obviously you can find the action agenda and all this other stuff on there too. But anyways, the state of the sound opens with the overall status and progress of conditions in Puget Sound as being mixed. Wait, why is the sound so salty? I don't know. Because the land doesn't wave back. Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, my. But who is this mysterious Puget Sound partnership? And what do they do and why? To answer those questions, we're going to go back to 2007, Mm. when then-governor of Washington, Christine Gregoire, birthed the little Puget Sound partnership baby. This baby was tasked with the tiny task of recovery of Puget Sound by 2020. Hmm. I mean, that was 13 years, so they probably should have it all recovered by the time this episode drops. Probably. Like they have a couple more weeks. Right. Anyways, they were specifically legislated to work towards six goals, which we're going to get into in just a minute. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about the partnership first. Okay. I'll allow it. Just uh, straight up from their website, um, the partnership is a state agency leading the region's collective effort to restore and protect Puget Sound. They bring together hundreds of partners to mobilize actions around a common agenda, advance investments, and advance priority actions by supporting partners. And their mission is basically to accelerate the collective effort to recover and sustain Puget Sound. That sounds good. Right? Mm -hmm. They align the work of partners, ensure smart investment, and support priority actions. They help build a shared vision for recovery through the action agenda. 
which identifies top priority actions or programs to stay on course for recovery. Whack fact. The Action Agenda is a recovery plan based on science and developed by a regional partnership. The plan describes local and regional strategies and highlights specific actions needed to protect and restore Puget Sound. These strategies and actions provide opportunities for federal, state, local, tribal, and private entities to better invest resources and coordinate actions. So basically, the action agenda was developed with the hope to bring efficiency and coordination to a very complex system that was an inclusive effort informed by science that guides the effective investment in Puget Sound recovery. It also meets the National Estuary Program's Comprehensive Conservation and Management Plan requirements, in addition to those Washington state legislated mandates. Regional implementation strategies help them identify how to best achieve recovery, as well as identify the biggest challenges and monitoring and research that helps to kind of inform and improve recovery. So really what it all boils down to is they're trying to both understand all of the great work that's going on out there, the challenges that all these groups are facing in relationship to the recovery of Puget Sound, and then prioritize and ensure effective funding of the recovery efforts. And they track the Puget Sound vital signs and publish the biennial State of the Sound report, which is what we're going to mostly be talking about today. Hmm. The bulk of the partnership is funded through the Puget Sound National Estuary Program, which is a U.S. EPA program. And for the 2015-2017 biennium, the partnership had a budget of $18.8 million, which included $9.9 million from the EPA, $7.5 million from Washington State, and $1.4 million from NOAA. Wow. So this is the cost within the partnership. But then the cost to actually implement all of the near-term actions that they have listed out in the action agenda mm-hmm. was estimated at $835 million for the last biennium. Hmm. And the near-term actions for the 2018 to 2022 action agenda, if we were to complete all of those, is estimated at over a billion dollars. Funding so is not at those levels by any means. It's a little bit short. Tiny, tiny bit. Yeah. Right in the report, that's one of the focuses is that sufficient funding remains one of the biggest barriers to the recovery of Puget Sound. The most recent action agenda includes 631 near-term actions, which are things that are basically ready to be implemented right now within the next four-year period. Wow. Yeah. So that's a lot of work to do. That's a lot and of work. And they're working with a lot of people out there. Yeah, I feel like it's time for a cat fact. Please give us something a little <laughs> bit less nerdy for a second. Did you know that ginger tabby cats can have freckles? around their mouth and on their eyelids no what's a ginger tabby like an orange stripe yeah. orange stripe yeah hmm. mm-hmm. i did not know that yeah isn't that fascinating it's just like you oh so getting back to the partnership's original mandate these six legislated goals i'm just going to kind of briefly mention them and then i'm going to go into a little bit more detail so the first one is a healthy human population supported by a healthy puget sound that is not threatened by changes to the ecosystem The second one is a vibrant quality of life, a quality of human life that is sustained by a functioning Puget Sound ecosystem. Third one is a healthy population of native species in Puget Sound, including a robust food web. The fourth one is a protected and restored habitat, a healthy Puget Sound where freshwater, estuary, nearshore, marine, and upland habitats are protected, restored, and sustained. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. The fifth one is abundant water quantity. An ecosystem that is supported by groundwater levels as well as by river and stream flows sufficient to sustain people, fish, wildlife, and natural functions of the environment. And the final one is healthy water quality. 
fresh and marine waters and sediments of sufficient quality to support water that is safe for drinking, swimming, and other human uses and enjoyment and is not harmful to the native marine mammals, fish, birds, and shellfish in the region. So as you can see, those were some very small tasks. This was back in 2007. They had until 2020, 13 years to get those things done. Seems I mean, pretty reasonable, yeah. right? Right. Also, is that the order that they were listed in? This is the order they were listed in on their website. Okay. I find it fascinating that it's all about humans first, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, that is interesting, too, because when we start to talk more about the indicators, mm-hmm. I did not follow this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I don't know if that was really on purpose or not. I mm-hmm. just start because when you look on their website, it's like a wheel. So there's not really a start or finish right. in that. Right. So I just kind of picked a place to start and mm-hmm. it probably aligns more with my interests. Right. But yeah, it is interesting. And I think that that's probably a delicate balance that they're trying to achieve to always mm-hmm. pull in that human and economic part of the story still. Because it'll get more support probably right. by appealing to those things. Correct. Fascinating. So... Getting back to what we're here to talk about, actually, what is up with the state of the sound? Basically, this is a biennial report, comes out every two years, anyways, uh, that the partnership develops to show the progress, or lack thereof, towards the recovery of Puget Sound. And they had set 2020 target goals for recovery with indicators within the Puget Sound vital signs. And those vital signs are basically a measure of ecosystem health, which then guide future efforts for sound recoveries. They have a goal measurement that they're trying to get to and then if they are not getting there they're going to try to course correct and figure out what they need to change to get to those goals Hmm. although many of them will not be attainable by 2020 just as a matter of fact because it's only two weeks away correct and the partnership has worked with numerous partners and stakeholders to develop indicators and target goals and then they are continually assessing and trying to find the best ways to support partners in the recovery of Puget Sound. Currently, they are tracking 25 different vital signs and 52 indicators of ecosystem condition, including one on human well-being. Hmm. 31 of the 52 indicators have a target goal set for recovery by 2020. Progress of the indicators is based on an evaluation over time compared to a baseline reference. And then the state of the sound breaks down the progress into five categories, which they define as getting better. That means that they are getting better compared to the baseline reference. Mixed results, only applicable to a handful of indicators that had multiple parts, the PCB and PBDE, uh, which are two toxic chemicals found in Pacific herring, hmm. where one of them um, was okay and one of them was not. But it's interesting that they use that for the Pacific herring, and I'm going to talk in a minute about the salmon indicator, mm-hmm. also for PCBs and PBDEs. And that one, they didn't call mixed results, but it certainly sounds like that. And we'll get into that a little bit with some of our discussion today. Then there's not improving, which just basically means there's no significant trend, positive or negative. Then getting worse, where it's actually lost ground compared to the baseline reference, or insufficient or no data, where the evaluation of progress or trend is not possible because there is not enough data or there is no data at all. Also, again, that one was used, you'll see in a couple of instances where there was information. So it's interesting how Mm -hmm. they came to some of these. Right. So just kind of at a high level, progress has been reported for 10 indicators, but only four, 13%, are already meeting or near their 2020 targets. Two of those four I have personally worked on. What? So pretty much if you want to help recover Puget Sound, you should probably hire us 
because I'm the person doing it single-handedly. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you should just be Amy. <laughs> Anyways, but only four, 13%, are already meeting or near their 2020 targets. Hmm. Three are actually getting worse, and those are all salmon orca related, Aww. sadly. Nine have mixed results, which we're going to question at least one of those. Mm-hmm. Seven have not had a significant change. And then 23 had insufficient or no data to determine progress or lack hmm. thereof. And then the indicators are broken out into those six legislated goal categories that we just discussed. And within them are 25 subcategories and then 52 indicators. So the vital sign would be something like freshwater quality. And the indicator would include things like number of freshwater impairments. Gotcha. And while I would love to dive into each one of these indicators, apparently we don't want the show to be like 17,000 hours long. We don't? We're already like an hour into the show right now. <laughs> so instead, we're just going to highlight a few of the indicators and talk about their current progress. We definitely recommend you check out their website. Their website has all of the vital signs and progress updates. Different vital signs have different levels of data and reporting, and some of them more vague, and others of them have great detail, links to relevant sources. Getting into some of the specifics of the vital signs from the report. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about the abundant water. It has only one vital sign, and that is summer stream flows, and that has only one indicator, summer low flows. Wow. For each legislative goal, we are going to highlight some of the indicators. But since summer low flow is the one that we're going to be highlighting instead of summarize and then repeat it, we're just going to dive right in to the summer low flows. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, We don't want to break our necks. It's a really good point. Don't dive right in to the summer low flows because there might not even be any water in that channel. Exactly. So summer flows in streams and rivers occur at a time of year in the Pacific Northwest that's characterized by warm temperatures and little rainfall, typically, and depleted snowpack. It's also when our area's water demand is the greatest and our supply is the lowest. Mm. So some seasonal variation in summer stream flow is normal. I mean, that's just based on those little tidbits I just said there. That's what we expect is that, you know, after that snowpack melts, which usually sustains the spring flows, and then they kind of are dying back for Mm. the rest of summer. Right. But exceptionally low flows exacerbated by development that draws water away from the streams in the summer can certainly cause problems for the whole watershed Mm -hmm. and for salmon and for people. Right. So summer low flows in Puget Sound Basin respond to a variety of driving forces, including rainfall, snowfall, temperature, evapotranspiration, land use conversion, forest practices, and human water consumption. Mm -hmm. So for this one, the current status is a mixed result. There's trends in summer low flow for the period of 1975 to 2017 at gauging stations on 12 large rivers. And the majority of rivers without dams have been on a declining trend since the 1970s. Oh, wow. Most rivers with stable summer low flows a few years ago continue to have stable flows, whereas the rivers that a few years ago had decreasing trends continue to show decreasing trends. Hmm. And the rivers with increasing trends actually continue to show increasing trends. So Interesting. It, 
I feel like this is a really good use of mixed results. Mm-hmm. Right. Five of the seven unregulated rivers have declining trends in summer low flows, and unregulated just means they don't have a dam on them, mm-hmm. basically. And only two of the seven non-regulated rivers, the Dungeness and the Puyallup, are meeting their 2020 target value of stable flows. And both of those rivers have glaciers in their headwaters. Uh, so they're going to have snow melt throughout the year until those glaciers melt off completely, right, of yeah. course. But they're going to continue to be recharged with that glacier mm-hmm. feed. Right. Of the seven rivers already meeting their 2020 target values, five of them are regulated with large dams. Mm. And those are the expected results given that the license-based requirements to release agreed upon in-stream flows for the fish. So basically, that's what we would expect of those because they can control how much water is released and there are court cases that have said they will release the water. Mm -hmm. But overall, they're below the 2020 target, which Mm. was stable flows Healthy water quality is another legislated requirement for the partnership. It includes four vital signs, freshwater quality, marine sediment quality, marine water quality, and toxics in fish. There are 12 indicators, 11 of which have 2020 targets. One indicator is getting better. That's the chemicals exceeding sediment quality standards, but it's still below the 2020 target. And another indicator is at or near the target, but its progress isn't improving, and that's sediment chemistry index. Interesting. All the other indicators are below the 2020 targets and either have mixed results, not improving, getting worse, or insufficient data for their progress. In other words, there's still a lot of work to be done in the water quality world. Right. So some examples of more specific indicators in the freshwater quality vital signs include the water quality index indicator. And the water quality index for rivers and stream combines eight different measurements of water quality based on monthly monitoring of 31 long-term monitoring stations across Puget Sound watersheds. But since 2008, the number of stations has actually ranged from 26 to 31 because of funding. The progress for this one is not improving. Between 1997 and 2017, there was no clear upward or downward trend in freshwater quality index, and therefore progress towards the 2020 target for this indicator is characterized as not improving. Well, the overall water quality index scores are not improving, some aspects of water quality are showing improvement, and that includes fecal coliform and total nitrogen. And there have been some slight reductions in stream temperature and total suspended sediment concentration in a few systems. Hmm. Two river systems show some improving trends that are significant, the Nisqually and Deschutes rivers. However, the recovery target is still not likely to be achieved by 2020. Hmm. And so basically, they're below their 2020 target for this one. And their target was by 2020 that at least half of all monitored stations should score 80 or above on the water quality index. Currently, only 33% of the monitored stations were at or above the target value of 80 um, on average from 2013 to 2017. The percentage is slightly lower than the baseline reference, but they say that the difference isn't significant. So they still don't call that getting getting worse. worse, Yeah. Yeah. Another vital sign includes the toxics in fish goal, and this one is interesting to me. So one of the indicators for that is contaminants in adult Chinook salmon. This target has been met. Hmm. 100% of samples were below the DOH screening value, but that's not the full story. Right. So of the five species of salmon in Puget Sound, 
Uh, Chinook salmon were chosen because they are contaminant risk to humans from consuming the fish hmm. because they spend more time feeding in Puget Sound than other salmon species. Interesting. Typically, Chinook salmon migrate to the ocean after leaving their natal rivers. <laughs> However, about a third of Chinook salmon actually remain for much or all of their life, all of their marine life in Puget Sound instead of migrating out to the open ocean. Interesting. I didn't know that. These are called resident Chinook salmon and are also known as blackmouth salmon. Huh. Resident Chinook salmon are common in Puget Sound and support important recreational fisheries, especially in winter months. Resident Chinook salmon were selected for this indicator in part because their contaminant levels are driven mostly by Puget Sound conditions rather than a mix of Puget Sound and ocean conditions. Mm -hmm. And since there is an actual recreational fisheries for the species in Puget Sound, they also pose a potential health risk to people that consume them. Interesting. So I'm going to be talking about PCBs and PBDEs. And PCBs PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls, and those are basically chemicals that were designed for industrial uses, and they were actually banned in the U.S. in 1979. Hmm. And then uh, PBDEs are polybrominated diphenyl ethers, which were designed for use as flame retardants in many products and which were actually banned in 2011 in Washington state. So we shouldn't have lots of new sources of these things coming in. They still exist out there, certainly, and then they bioaccumulate up the food web. Right. But, you know, we shouldn't be seeing new big sources of these things because they are both actually banned. Right. They had samples collected from eight sites across Puget Sound in 2016 and 2017. The current progress is insufficient or no data. Um, but like I was kind of alluding to on how they classify these, it seems a little bit more like it's mixed results. Huh. They show that PCB exceeded the DOH screening value in all marine areas. Wow. And PBDEs were all below the DOH screening levels. So to me, that sounds exactly like what they talked about their mixed result for herring. Right. But here they're saying that they don't have enough information. So they weren't clear as to why. So we can't tell you why. PBDEs were relatively low, suggesting that these chemicals have either declined or have never been elevated. Interesting. They then state in their results and interpretation of results section, the results for toxic chemical contaminants in adult resident Chinook salmon from Puget Sound are mixed <laughs> because PBDE values were below DOH screening value while PCB values exceeded the screening values. So to me, I don't know if this was just like somebody messed up there. Right. Or, you know, they even state in right. <laughs> their own thing that it is mixed. So anyways... They are below the 2020 target for the PCBs. And the target is met if Moshinook salmon muscle tissue samples calculated as the 95th percentile contain total PCB concentrations below the Department of Health screening value for human health. And the target is not met since 100% of the samples were above the screening value. So, yeah. But on the flip side with the PBDE, 100% of those were below. Were below. So yeah. that seems like a pretty clear <laughs> case of mixed results. But for whatever reason, that's not what they're saying. Fascinating. So the next one is protected and restored habitat. That is the goal. This one contains five vital signs, including eelgrass, estuaries, floodplains, land cover and development, and shoreline armoring. There are 12 indicators all of which have 2020 targets. Seven of the indicators are getting better, and three of those are near or at the 2020 target. Yay! One indicator is not improving, which is the sound-wide eelgrass. 
And the remaining four indicators have insufficient or no data to report on their progress. And seven also have insufficient or no data to report on their progress towards the 2020 target. In other words, some indicators are improving with a few even reaching their goals, but there's still more work to do. So some examples of more specific vital signs and their indicators, uh, we're gonna discuss two of them. The first one is shoreline armoring vital sign with the net change in permitted shoreline armor indicator. Mm. Yes. So are we going to get nighty here again? Yeah, we are. Knights of the Nearshore. So from 2011 to 2020, the total amount of armoring removed should be greater than the total amount of new armoring in Puget Sound. So they want the total miles removed to be greater than the total miles added. But with 29% of the shoreline covered with armoring, it seems like maybe they need to shoot for a reduction below what's being added. Right. A loss, yeah. So this indicator is getting better, but what makes this goal super confusing, or at least it made it confusing for me, it's actually measuring net cumulative change over the period from 2011 through 2020. So not year over year, like I was initially thinking. Mm. So it is getting better, but it's not quite at the goal yet. Um, it is true that jurisdictions are changing their permitting regulations to come into compliance with state guidelines, but this has happened slowly during the past 10 years, and it's taking a while for the numbers to add up in terms of more armor being removed than erected. So one thing that's seemingly not being taken into account is that some hardshore armoring is being replaced by softshore armoring techniques, which, as we discussed in a prior episode, is a lot better for the sound, but this indicator doesn't reflect that. They don't currently take into account any armor replacement projects because replacing armor has no effect on the net amount of armoring in our shorelines. But about half of the armoring being replaced is now soft armoring, which is better. I would like to actually point out that they do have an indicator for soft shore. It is its own target, though, is my next sentence. Oh, <laughs> sorry, Jen. Look, I did my homework, though. And according to the report, there have also been changes in the material used for armor for new construction projects. So a lot of the new armoring that's going in, so the net, you know, that's being added, that is being looked at under this indicator, it's actually soft armor instead of hard armor. So And is more reflective of the natural. Like logs and gravels, as opposed to traditional hard armor. Right. This is also below the 2020 target. So more permitted armor was added than removed cumulatively since 2011. Um, but the net cumulative length gain has, is only three-tenths of a mile or 1,600 feet. I'm actually surprised that they don't call that significant. Yeah. Right. And however, the numbers are moving in the right direction. So in 2018, just looking at 2018 itself, the net cumulative length was actually negative tenth of a mile. So more armor removal projects were happening than armor was being added, you know, at the cumulative tenth of a mile. But a lot more armor removal projects are getting grant funding. So maybe we'll make it after all? Probably not because we only have two weeks left. But it's definitely moving the right, right direction. Yeah. That one seems almost there. So. Right. So the other one we're going to talk about is the land cover and development vital sign. And that includes the indicator for rate of forest cover loss to development. The forest loss indicator is measured by the number of acres of non-federal forest land cover converted to development. Forested landscapes obviously provide habitat that support 
terrestrial species. They deliver watershed functions. They support freshwater systems and provide ecological and cultural services for humans. So this indicator provides a check on the region's success in maintaining forest covers throughout Puget Sound Basin. It also provides a check on the overall kind of ecosystem and those ecosystem services that the forests provide. Hmm. So the good news is they claim that this one is getting better. Uh-oh, that didn't sound like good news. Hmm. I mean, it is. We should stay as positive right. as we can about <laughs> these things. So the non-federal forest lands were lost to development at a rate of 2,176 acres per year for the period of 2001 to 2006, which is the baseline reference here, which was a period of a lot of growth in this area. Hmm. The target goal was set to 1,000 acres per year. We're near or at the 2020 target. And the most recent period with available information shows that the rate of forest loss decreased to below that target value down to 836 acres per year. Hmm. But it's probably worth noting that that's from 2011 to 2016. And our area is still mostly in that time period been in the recovery from the recession. So overall development has slowed down a lot during that time period. Mm -hmm. So to me, it would be interesting if they actually compared like the growth rate to the forest conversion rate Mm -hmm. to see if that has actually changed or if that growth rate is really what's making the change in this percentage right Mm -hmm. now. And that target goal basically just reflected a trade-off between the need, need to safeguard habitat and ecosystem functioning while still allowing growth and development. We are expected to have, what, another 2 million people in Puget Sound in the next three months or something. I don't know. Wait, it's, what? It's some short period of time. <laughs> I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But. Wow. So, you know, we do have to figure out how to accommodate these new people that will be living here somehow and i don't know what the answer to that question is right except for you know sustainable everything Mm -hmm. since 1991 the rate of forest loss has been declining fairly constantly so that's great Hmm. as the economy recovers forest loss may rise thus achieving and maintaining a rate of a thousand acres per year may still be an ambitious goal Right. Next goal is the thriving species and food web. It has four vital signs, birds, Chinook, salmon, orcas, and Pacific herring. There are five indicators, three of which have 2020 targets. No targets for the birdies. Unfortunately, none of these indicators are getting better, and all of them are below the 2020 targets. Hmm. The progress for orcas and Pacific herring is actually getting worse, and Chinook salmon population abundance is not improving. And then marine birds actually has a mixed result while terrestrial bird population abundance had insufficient or no data. So in other words, things are kind of a little bleak in the food chain area right now. And if we can't restore the needed habitat and get the chemicals out of our waters, we're going to lose some iconic Pacific Northwest species. And, you know, the three marine water species are 100% connected. Mm -hmm. Resident Southern Orca feed on Chinook who prefer to feed on Pacific herring. Hmm. So obviously when one part of that food system starts collapsing, it reverberates through the entire ecosystem. Unfortunately. Yes. So another goal is the healthy human population. It has six vital signs, air quality, drinking water, local foods, on-site sewage systems, targets. Two of the indicators are getting better. That's the inventory inspection and repair of on-site sewage systems and the area of harvestable shellfish beds. Obviously, because I worked on both of these. Obviously. 
And there are two that are not improving, conditions of swimming beaches and exposure to impaired air quality. Three are below the 2020 target and one has insufficient data. Although it sounds like it's below the 2020 target when you read into the details. Hmm. So diving a little bit deeper into the on-site sewage system vital sign. I'm going to skip that too. Jen, if you don't dive into shallow creeks and sewage systems, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. <laughs> These things are things to get excited about. Uh. <laughs> okay, so one of their indicators is the inventory inspection and repair of on-site sewage systems. This one is getting better, but they're still below their 2020 target. The 2020 target for inventories has nearly been met, but significant work remains to reach the 2020 target inspection rate. So they've got the inventory, but not all the inspections yet at the level they want them. Mm -hmm. There are over 79,000 systems that have been inventoried this is only from within the marine recovery areas. So of those, 93% of them have record of installation or a record of inspection and maintenance. So basically, there's a record that shows us that they really do exist on some level. The remaining systems are assumed to be there, but we don't have a record or we don't have any record of maintenance. So we can't be certain that they're mm, actually there. Right. Hmm. And then, unfortunately, only 51% of those systems had been inspected at the start of 2019. And the goal is 90% inspected in the designated areas. So there remains issues for data collection on septic system failure and repair rates also. But during the most recent assessment, they identified a better way to collect this information from the local jurisdictions. And they identified 610 failures and 222 repairs, or a 36% repair rate. Wow. And the goal is to have 90% of identified failures repaired or mitigated. Wow. So only 36% of the failing septics were repaired. That there's documentation That's, of right. repair of that system. Another one in here is the outdoor activity vital sign. And they had conditions of swimming beaches as an indicator. Mm -hmm. The 2020 target was to have all monitored beaches in Puget Sound meet EPA's standards for what's called enterococcus, a type of fecal bacteria. And uh, they're not to have more than one exceedance of the bacteria standard during the swimming season. Six beaches of 62 Puget Sound marine beaches that were monitored did not meet the standard. I actually feel like that's really not that bad. Six out of 62 beaches had more than one exceedance over a swimming period. Uh-huh. Delicious. So so what I'm hearing is they're fine with one exceedance happening every swimming period yeah. in each beach. Well, if you knew fecal coliform bacteria, you would know uh, that it's kind of everywhere all the time. Right. So actually to try to expect to have none anywhere is... Uh -huh. It's fairly unrealistic. Right. And because you can't control people and people are one of the main sources of it. So <laughs> Right. Unless we had a shift, a big shift in our culture and how we mm -hmm. um, prepared to get into the water. <laughs> right. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's... And there are other things that could be going on, certainly. Mm -hmm. Anyways, to me, somebody who's seen a lot of fecal bacteria, 6 out of 62 doesn't seem all that bad. And mm -hmm. this is all over Puget Sound. So. Right. Uh, but they say that the progress is not improving and that they're below their 2020 target. Hmm. So between 2004 and 2019, they say there is no upward or downward trend in the indicator. Many local bacteria problems have been identified and corrected. There are year-to-year -year fluctuations in marine water quality at swimming beaches, and there's just no clear trend in progress towards the goal. Mm. 
I think the last one we're going to talk about in this human health goal is the shellfish beds vital sign. And this includes the area of harvestable shellfish beds indicator. And this indicator tracks the changes in classification of harvestable shellfish beds in Puget Sound. Washington State Department of Health classifies 108 shellfish growing areas to assure that harvested shellfish are safe to consume. And information on marine water quality in Puget Sound. Hmm. So the 2020 target was a net increase of 10,800 harvestable shellfish acres between 2007 and 2020, including 7,000 acres where harvest had previously been prohibited. Hmm. For this one, we're getting better. From 2007, the baseline reference, through August of 2018, more acres of shellfish beds were upgraded than downgraded across all classifications, which resulted in a net increase of 5,565 acres of harvestable shellfish beds. During the same time period, a net of 4,523 acres of shellfish beds were upgraded from the prohibited classification to something above that. Hmm. So they're still below their 2020 targets, about 52% of the 2020 target for overall upgrades. And they're doing pretty good on the prohibited, right? Mm -hmm. 5,000 of the 7,000 they need. So that one is getting better, too. Awesome. Oh, and for them, a big part of this whole puzzle is the Samish Bay, which is a lot of acres and was Mm -hmm. downgraded right in 2007. And so basically without, I think parts of it have been upgraded now, but without getting a large portion of that one upgraded, basically they won't be able to meet the standard. But if they get that one upgraded, then they will. Wow. Okay. And then the final one is vibrant human quality of life. It's got five vital signs. I call these the foo-foo vital signs. And now I shouldn't have even said that because the first one is cultural well-being, which I absolutely support. (laughs) And economic vitality. Okay, never mind. I didn't mean it. (laughs) But some of how they measure it is a little foo-foo, I guess. Good governance, sense of place, and sound stewardship. For this one, there's 10 indicators, none of which have 2020 targets. And I have lots of questions about what the point of having an indicator is without a target. I mean, I guess if we're just trying to look at if things are getting better or getting worse, but Mm -hmm. it seems weird and I didn't feel like they had enough information to describe why they had the two. None of the indicators are getting better. One indicator was not improving. That's the sound behavior index and three have mixed results. The remaining six have insufficient or no data for their progress. And many of these seem like it would be hard to measure progress. Some of the indicators include things like overall life satisfaction, lots of indices like the sound behavior index, sense of place index, psychology well-being index, good governance index, and other stuff. Mm. I'm not going to go into any of those because I've been talking for way too long. I'm going to let Jen talk now for a little bit. So that's kind of the high level of uh, the state of the sound. A lot of things not doing so great. A couple of things are getting better. There's still a lot of work to do. When we finally get to our citizen science, we're going to talk a little bit about the call to action, which is a big part of the state of the sound. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jen. Hey, Amy. What's the difference between a cat and a comma? Um, I don't know. One has claws at the end of its paws, and the other is a pause at the end of a clause. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) You're up, Jen. So it's finally time to talk about GIS. Finally time to talk about GIS. We're done 
Oh, no, we're still nerding out. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) So the Vital Signs website is visually pleasing, I think. It has a lot of infographics, but there's no maps. I mean, if you drill down, you can find some maps, but they're not very good. Agree to agree on this one, Jen. (laughs) So I think they could really benefit from some maps. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. (laughs) So in looking around their website, I found that they do use GIS, but they display most of their results in Tableau dashboards. And these are great dashboards, but they're really limited in terms of the mapping capabilities. See our show notes for an example. Tableau does a free offering, and I've been meaning to test it out, but it is what it is. So, Amy. Yes, Jen? Why did the GPS coordinate get kicked out of class? I don't know. He had a bad latitude. (laughs) I see you smiling over there. (laughs) Well, I'm just glad to see that you're talking. (laughs) Well, if you're new to GIS and dashboards, the Tableau dashboards are really great to try out. But a tool that I prefer is Esri's operations dashboard. That's because she likes GIS. That's right. So this is one of the offerings through ArcGIS Online. And used for data that changes less frequently as well. And with an operations dashboard, you can show maps, charts, graphs, lists, and a lot more, all on the same dashboard. And these elements can interact with each other. So for instance, if you zoom in on the map, The graphs and charts can update to show just the statistics from the areas shown on the map. I have literally spent so much of my life doing that exact thing. (laughs) It's really nice to know that there's something else that can do that now besides me. Mm -hmm. And it does it right on the fly. Exactly. The state of the sound shows the status of different factors sound-wide, but it doesn't indicate if certain areas are doing better than others. Maybe if you drill way down, it's somewhere, but I had a hard time finding that. So for instance, the 2019 report shows that the total area of shellfish beds open for harvest has increased, but it doesn't show where the new acreage is. Like, is it throughout the sound or is it clustered in one area? And this could give us more information and potentially help direct funds or encourage projects in specific areas that may be struggling. And I will say, I do believe they actually had an open acres of shellfish harvest bed, but it was mm-hmm. it was a static map and there wasn't a yeah. comparison to what it was before to what it is now that I remember seeing. And like you said, it could be somewhere on the webpage that be. we were unable to find it also. It was a pretty confusing website. It's very complex. And you have to drill down. And... and and it's got different levels of information from the different people that are responsible for the different right. parts. So you don't get a very consistent right. message from one vital sign to the next. I mean, the reality is that might be as good as it can get because they are different also. So Yes, see the GIS Tools blog on our website at alivepodcast.com. For more information on the operations dashboard, as well as links to several examples. Awesome. And we'll link to that in our show notes. So it's time for the call to action. One of the main take-home messages from the current state of the sound is that although much of the data is bleak and we're far from recovery, there's still time to recover Puget Sound. And each of us has a role to play. A role to play. A role to play. In that recovery. 
So the State of the Sound report resounds this call for action. Let us be bold in our intent and actions to build a healthy, resilient, and economically prosperous Puget Sound for all. I wonder what their definition of economically prosperous is. I don't know. According to the message from Laura Blackmore, the partnership's director, the primary barriers between us and more food for orcas, clean and sufficient water for people and fish, sustainable working lands, and harvestable shellfish are funding and political fortitude. The single greatest step we could take to ensure a durable, systematic, and science-based effort to recover Puget Sound is to fully fund the implementation of habitat protection and restoration, water quality protection, and salmon recovery programs. So they've broken out specific actions for various groups and partners that are critical to Puget Sound recovery. And these groups include recommendations for action from the state legislature, state agencies, local government, Congress, federal agencies, the Puget Sound Partnership, non-governmental organizations, and the public. So they have lots of stuff that lots of different groups can do. They also have tribal recommendations, but acknowledge that their tribal partners are sovereign nations and invite them to continue to work together in specific ways. And if you want to see all their recommendations, we'll have a link to the call to action in our show notes. Uh, We're going to focus here on the public recommendations, what you can personally do, you and I, Amy. Mm. So what can we do? We can get involved. How do we do that? You can volunteer for a habitat restoration project or a community-based science program. That sounds fun. See orca.wa.gov for links to organizations to join or plant a tree at home. Ooh. We can also quiet the waters of Puget Sound to help orcas find food. Hmm. If you're a boater, give orcas space. Follow the Be Whale Wise, which is bewhalewise.org, guidelines for whale watching. And please use pump out stations to keep sewage out of Puget Sound. You could drive less. Hmm. Support efforts to improve alternative transportation options in Puget Sound region, like maybe don't vote for $30 tabs. Also, Keep plastics and toxic chemicals out of our waterways. You can do that by recycling. Use environmentally friendly products in your home and on your landscape. Fix vehicle leaks. Use a commercial car wash. And have your vehicle oil changed by a professional. I would actually say on this one, they really should be asking people to take it a step farther. And Hmm. I think we all need to seriously consider all of our single-use plastic purchases and not just keeping them out of our waterways, but not purchasing them as much as possible in the first place. I mean, I know these things are inherent in most of our grocery stores and stuff like that for food, But really, if we want to get to that next level until we find some other way to better deal with the minuscule amount of our plastic that gets recycled, we need to just stop using it. Yes. Agreed. And find an alternative. Agreed. And so I don't really think they go far enough on that one. Yeah. So another thing you can do is speak up for Puget Sound. I mean, this kind of gets back to what I was just talking about with the driving option. But vote. Tell a friend. Make sure your local, state, and federal representatives know how important Puget Sound is to you. And finally, last but not least of all, you can listen to our previous episodes, educate yourself, and take action. Tell a friend about the podcast as well. In previous episodes of our podcast, we've discussed actually many of the topics raised in the State of the Sound. For example, 
salmon. We discussed that in episodes 16, 15, and 8. Or shoreline armoring, the Knights of the Near Shore in episode 13. Marine debris removal, which relates to toxins in the water and their impacts on fish and other species in episode 12. Drought, or the opposite of abundant water, in episode 11. Keeping human waste out of the sound, episodes 10, 7, and 2. In case you forgot, number 2 is my favorite topic. (laughs) Fire, which of course has an impact on air quality, in episode 9, fire must burn. (laughs) And non-native species in episode 3, crabs. So there you have it, the end of episode 17. We hope you have guffawed and teed and learned your way through and that we have inspired you to make it out alive. Today, we finally shared what backdoor style is. It's not what you thought. Discuss the state of the sound. Poor. Dashboards. Good, assuming they have maps. And what we can all do to improve the state of the sound. Listen to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Please join us for our next episode. We think we will be talking about wetlands and World Wetlands Day, which is February 2nd, a few days before our next podcast release. But don't worry, we'll still have some great ways for you to connect to local wetlands in your area in February. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts like TuneIn, CastBox, Himalaya, iHeartRadio, etc. Please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash will we make it out alive. Also, if you're more visually inclined, check out our YouTube page. And go leave us a review, please. Oh, yes. We are begging for reviews. Begging. Until next time. Will we make it out alive? Amy the Poop Detective. Peace out, yo. Jen the Magical Mapper. Peace out, yo. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently that's our new sign-off. You're welcome, world.